This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor, Matt Myers. Today is Thursday, November 2nd, and guess what? We have a World Series champion. The Texas Rangers have won the World Series for the first time in history. Congrats to them. Matt, I wouldn't say I had like a rooting interest here necessarily because like there's lots of things to like about both teams, but there was definitely a part of me that's like, They've been around for so long. They moved to Texas in 1972. They came about as close as you can come to winning a World Series without winning a World Series in the past. And so, like, without disrespecting Diamondback fans, I think I'm happy this is the way it turned out. Like, this is this is cool for the Rangers. It's cool for Rangers fans. And obviously, given all, like, the major moves they made to improve their team and get here, it, it's, it's just a cool story all around. I'm happy with this. Yeah, of the six teams prior to yesterday who had never won the World Series – they had been around the longest if you count their time in Washington because they started as the centers in 1961. Um, now, of course, the I guess the Padres and Mariners or and Brewers, Padres and Brewers both came around in 1969 in one form. The Brewers were the Pirates for that for the, were the pilots for that year. Um, so, in terms of in their current market, the Rangers had been around quite as long, but in terms of franchise existence, they've been around the longest without a title. So. That's always cool. And then obviously there's a personal connection for us. For us, our former colleague, Darren Willman, um, the founder of Baseball Savant, who took his talents to the Rangers, uh, I guess, three or four years ago, um, got to win a World Series. And we got to see a photo of him holding the World Series trophy. And I showed my kids tomorrow, showed my kids this morning. I was like, hey, I used to work with this guy. He won the World Series last night. <laughs> That's funny. I did the same thing. I showed my wife like, hey, you remember Darren? Look at he's on the trophy. Um, super excited for him. That's awesome. That was I was very happy to be on a text thread with everybody last night saying Darren World Series winner, which is amazing. What do you take away from this World Series? What we're going to do today, obviously, we're going to recap the World Series, think about Texas place in history and look ahead a little bit to the offseason. I'm trying to think if there's anything notable I take away from Arizona, Texas, like I've seen people saying, well, Arizona proves that, I don't know, sacrifice bunting, wins you ball games. I don't know if I buy that. I personally would not bunt my number three hole hitter in a big spot as they did last night. I'm, I, I'm finding it hard to take away larger meaning other than that these were two good, maybe not great teams who were healthy in the right spots and got hot at the right times and, you know, made it work, right? Like, when Arizona beat the Dodgers, as we talked about, does anybody think they're a better roster than the Dodgers? No. Did the Dodgers have even one single good starting pitcher at that point in time? Like, also no. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a few things. I mean, I guess for me, the thing that I will take away from this postseason, which I think is oh, – I'm not even sure it's getting enough attention because it's almost hard to wrap your arms around, is the Rangers going 11-0 and on the road yes, in the postseason? It's almost unfathomable. Like it's like you think of records that will never be broken. I mean, 
it's hard to actually even get a chance to win 11 row games. It depends on how things like stack up. It's only possible because of the new format, right? Really, um, to do it. I guess it could have been done in the the previous. What, regardless, the, the max you could get, I think, is 12. So just from there, going to, like that's as a starting point hard enough. 11 and 0 on the road. That's like that's crazy. The previous record was 8 and 0 on the road in a single postseason. So that's hard to wrap your head around. Not to mention the fact that they ended the regular season. In Seattle, trying to win the division, they lose the tiebreaker, they lose the division on the final day, and they have to make the longest possible flight you can make in Major League Baseball, basically. Maybe no, if it's going to Miami, it would have been longer. But basically, the longest possible flight, Seattle to Tampa, to play. So the worst possible road trip you can take. And you would think logic would dictate, oh, they're going to be in trouble. They've got to take this long trip against a rested team. And not only do they just go and sweep their rays, they subsequently do not lose another road game the rest of the postseason. To me, that's incredible. And I like they deserve a big tip of the cap. Yeah, I think I've got two takeaways here. Um, one is that Bruce Bochy is apparently some sort of managerial god. Like, I've never been the one who says, oh, the manager changes everything. And obviously, I don't think it was all him. But for him to show up and in year one win the World Series that the team has never done before after how wretched they were the last couple of years, it's monumentally impressive um the other thing and I, it feels like nothing in a world series could possibly be under the radar but I, I sort of feel like this isn't talked about enough right now don't forget in game three max scherzer got hurt adolis garcia got hurt they're both removed from the playoff roster and that seemed that to me seems like that could be kind of a turning point here right no <laughs> they went out and the beginning of game four totally bombed arizona they, you know last night's game game five was very well played to lose both of those guys and have it be like a speed bump on the way to, I don't know, Travis Jankowski playoff immortality. That's when you get into like team of destiny sort of stuff, I think, because like literally Travis Jankowski. <laughs> yes. And, the, but even though they lost Garcia, who had been their best uh, power hitter or, or, or right up there with Seager, best power hitter, the Rangers out homered the Diamondbacks eight to three in this series, which I think is maybe just like a reminder of like a truth of the postseason is that like you hit more homers, you win. And I know that seems and to some people that feels controversial to some people that feels like, well, duh, well, duh, because like that's, I think, where the Diamondbacks ultimately ran into trouble. They just really weren't getting any power. You know, Corbin Carroll, as exciting and fun as he is, like he didn't really hit for any. Not that he's a power hitter, but he's got some pop. I don't think he homered in the postseason. Um, Christian Walker was in a huge slump. Tommy Pham and was really their only consistent consistent source of power. I guess Kettle Marte to a lesser extent, although he was hitting a lot of singles. And eventually that catches up to you. Whereas whereas the Rangers were getting obviously getting power from Seager and Garcia. Marcus Simeon finally got his back going. So the 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 power difference is what is what stood out because I mean the the D backs did start to take advantage of their speed in the last two rounds of the, the postseason, which I think was something that. Everyone was waiting for them to do through the first two rounds. And then in the NLCS, they were nine for nine in stolen bases against the Phillies. And then in the World Series, they were seven for eight. And the Rangers stole one base. They were one for one. And that's fun and it's entertaining. But ultimately, the power difference is what what, what ruled the day for the Rangers. Yeah, the Rangers have homered in 16 consecutive playoff games. <laughs> that's the longest stretch in a single postseason. Obviously, it's kind of hard to have gotten to 16 postseason games at all, you know, in previous formats. Uh, I want to I want to issue a slight uh rant here if you'll allow me 30 seconds game four the rangers won 11 to 7 but it was not nearly that close right they got out to what were they up 10 nothing i think because what happened was tori lavello started joe man's apply and did a bullpen game it didn't go well they got crushed i i was very surprised at how many 
people and like writers and like people on TV and professionals were like, oh, that's what they get. Throwing a bullpen game in the World Series is like spitting in the face of baseball history. And it's like, yeah, that, that's not my preferred way to watch baseball either. But who was he supposed to throw? They didn't do it because they're smarter than everybody. They did it because they have no other starting pitchers. You know, it'd be great to be there. Maybe if Madison Bumgarner had been there, but he got released because he had an ERA of like 10 and a half. They did not have a fourth starting pitcher. It is a miracle they were there. They were not trying to outsmart everybody with a bullpen game, which for the record, they did do that in the NLCS and they won the game Joe Mantiply started. That that whole reaction kind of bothered me a little bit because it just didn't feel like it reflected the actual choices on the field. Yeah, exactly. And just because uh, Ryan Nelson went through five solid innings, like that's like real, like, you know, post-hack analysis because like, it's at that point it was low leverage. Like the game was already kind of a blowout. Like it's a different, it's a totally different vibe than starting the game against the top of their order in a zero zero game. Then like coming in when you're already down, whatever, I don't even know what it was at the time, like six, six to six to nothing or something like, or maybe 10 to nothing. I don't even, I don't even know what it was at that time, but it was like, it was not a close game. So I was like, you can't say after the fact like, well, they should have started him. He threw five solid innings. No, I don't, I don't accept that. Um, I mean, they didn't have, I don't yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget, too, that was a bullpen game for Texas also. I know it doesn't look that way because Heaney went like five innings, but he was only out there because they were up like 10 nothing. He was going to go one time through, and then all of a sudden they're up by a billion runs, and now he's like soaking up garbage time innings. It's like even though he threw a full start, that was not the plan. It was a bullpen game on both sides. It's 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 definitely like, you know, not the most aesthetically pleasing type of baseball, although I will note that like Casey Stingle – a legendary manager was known for quick hooks in the postseason. Like he pulled like Whitey Ford after like two innings in World Series games, like when he wasn't even getting hit that hard. Like this is there is a a, a point in baseball history where yeah, like the opener wasn't a thing, but there are certain you know like there are certain things we choose to forget when we like think about baseball history if it doesn't fit into the narrative that we want. And while I think it's possible to hold two two. The, to these two thoughts in your head, one of which being like, yeah, like the opener is like not the most excitedly pleasing type of baseball, but also what else are the Diamondbacks going to do? And just sort of be like, hey, this is where we are right now. Let's try and let's try and enjoy it. It's not like they were they were making this decision when they had like a well rested two thousand one version of Randy Johnson ready ready and waiting. No, that'd be nice. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up and ask you about: we just got through the first postseason with the new rules right? With the bases and the no shift and the larger pitch clock. And uh, I, I noticed during the World Series, Fox was not showing the pitch clock on their graphics. And um, I didn't even notice that until I saw someone complaining about it. And that sort of made me realize that the fact I wasn't even noticing it was a good thing. Like, that's just how there were no issues, right? No games ended on a violation. Uh, just like from a personal point of view, and this might be specific to people like you and I who like work in baseball, at the end of like the 18 postseason, the 19 postseason, I remember feeling like drained because, you know, we were up till like three o'clock in the morning every night or later. And now it's like, oh, these games moved along. I feel great. Let's do it again. Like it was such a much more enjoyable baseball watching experience in the postseason. I'm really glad it worked out. I think that the point you made about Fox is a really good one. And I give, I think the production crew deserves a lot of credit for it because I think they made the realization like, you know what, like there aren't pitch violations happening. I think I saw one in the World Series. Um, and certainly didn't happen in any tight spots. I mean, obviously, as it, as it turned out, like, the players just adjusted. They understood, hey, like, big spots. I cannot be messing around with this. I got to get the pitch off in time. As it turned out, over the course of the year, most pitchers were were releasing their pitches with, like, five seconds left on the clock anyway. Something like, you know, Jordan Montgomery kind of likes to game it. You know, he, like, goes down to, like, the last instant. But most of them 
are leaving a few seconds on the clock to begin with. I actually had a friend text me being like, wait, they're not using the pitch clock in the postseason? And I said, what makes you say that? He's like, well, I don't see it on the screen. And I was like, yeah, well, that's just because that's literally just because the the players have adjusted. It's a non-factor at this point. And um, I said, you know, this was this was during game three. And I thought game three was actually a good example, right? Because game three was not an especially interesting game. I think it was a three-to-one game. D-backs hardly got anything going. And the game was like two hours and 50 minutes. And it was not a game. It was a game that in past years would have taken three hours and 40 minutes for no reason. Like, I don't mind steak. A three and a half hour, four hour game doesn't bother me when it's an exciting, riveting game with lots going on. When it's just this like ho hum game without lead changes, without many runners on base, without like a lot of strategy, like it should take under three hours. And that was like a good example. To me, that was in some ways the best example of like the clock working as it should. And then the other example I would say is game one, right? That was a classic World Series game. And there was all this talk, oh, what about in the ninth inning? Is are we gonna lose drama when the pitchers when the, the relievers can't step off like 18 times? Well, you have the, the amazing game tying homer from Corey Seeger. I don't think I didn't hear anyone saying anything about the pitch clock. And then you have the Dolas Garcia walk off in extra innings. Like if the NL, if the LCS hadn't proved it with those close games, I think game one proved it that like pitch clock is not going to hinder the drama in the postseason. It's it's so funny that you picked those two games because I was looking at two games and they're two different games that I was going to use to make this example, right? So it was actually the last two games. So game four, uh, as we just talked about the Joe Mantiply game, that was not a very interesting game after the first two innings, right? It was a total blowout. And that's the kind of game where you're like, oh, this could go like four hours and there's just no drama left because they're up by a billion runs. Three hours and 18 minutes, perfectly reasonable. And then in game five, where you had like, the closest we're going to get, I think, to like a real classic pitcher's duel. You know, Evaldi was great. Uh, Nathan, um, Zach Allen was great. And like, that's the kind of pitcher's duel everybody wants. And that was dramatic as hell. Like, it really was. At no point was I like, oh, this is going too fast. I, I can't suck in the drama. So I was a huge proponent of the clock. I'm so happy it worked out. And I think it's going to change baseball for the better. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Ballpark Conventions podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Matt, I think we should talk about what the legacy of the 2023 Texas Rangers will be. Obviously, a ton of talk about the uh, expanded postseason and the format and whether it's rewarding the best teams and on and on and on. And 
Texas, uh, with a 90 and 72 record, was a good team. I think we could agree they weren't necessarily a great team. Uh, they didn't end up winning the division, although they did spend 160 days in first place. And when I look back at the last like you know 10 years or so of uh, of World Series champions, like since the wild card came around in 2012, I certainly can't put them up with like the great great teams. You know, the 2016 Cubs, the 17 Astros, however you feel about them, the 18 Red Sox. But I certainly don't look at them as a like an unrepresentative winner. Like 160 days in first place is really good. They scored the third most runs in baseball, tied for the 13th fewest allowed with the Braves. Like they were a good team. I won't say they were the best team, but do I look back at this and say, oh God, this is going to be some historic outlier and we're going to cringe thinking about this team winning the World Series? Like, no, no, I, I think it's perfectly fine. Could not agree more. And I, I do, I was worried a little bit that this would get lost in the discussion about the format. And like, because one thing is true, they were a, the number five seed in the American League, which was the, which is now the lowest seed that has ever won the World Series. Um, so there's, that is like the big sort of strike against them. But as you said, I mean, they they tied with the Astros in the standings. Um, no one would have said the Astros were paper like were like you know fake champions if they had come through. It turned out that the Astros won the season series against them and got the tiebreaker, so that's why they won the division. But then, of course, the Rangers went and beat them in the ALCS, winning four games on the road, basically saying, "Yes, I know you got home field advantage, and we are going to win every single game in your stadium." I mean, we want to a certain degree, we want things settled on the field, and I think the Rangers kind of proved themselves. In that ALCS, um, you know, if you look at their run differential, it was the second best in the American League behind only the Rays. They actually had a better run differential than the Orioles, who they quickly dispatched in the in the division series. Um, and the thing about the 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 Rangers that I don't think is fully reflected in their record, like we've talked about this a lot, is like their their roster changed over the course of the year, right? You know, they they added. I mean, a couple of guys, they add, a couple of their big additions, Chapman and Scherzer, didn't end up doing that much for them, right? And it's actually pretty funny. As an aside, I was thinking about this, that Aroldis Chapman is now going to be part of like two rental trades where he basically like went to a new team and the other team got a player that is probably like he was traded for Glaber Torres in 2016. And the Yankees definitely feel like they feel great about that trade. And the Royals got Cole Reagans for Aroldis Chapman, and they definitely feel great about that trade. So um, the teams that have traded away Aroldis Chapman have ended up feeling very, very good about it. And he almost blew it for both the teams they ended up being on. Of course, he now has two rings. But anyway, back to the point at hand. Um, they did add Jordan Montgomery, who was a huge difference maker for them at the deadline. And they added Evan Carter in September, who instantly became one of their best players and just set a record for most doubles in a postseason. So like the 90 wins may not fully reflect like the the team that they 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 ultimately had because yes they had Jacob Degrom but he was never really part of it to begin with he barely pitched all season long. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually going to talk about him for a second. So it's tempting to say, well, they had Degrom and they had Scherzer and neither one of them contributed to the World Series win, right? And like you know, Scherzer didn't do much in the postseason. But I was looking at this this morning. So Degrom only made six starts the team won all six of those starts, right? Because he was fantastic. Like, he pitched so well, and then he got hurt. Well, he got, he like, got rocked on opening day, and if I recall, Cole Reagans got the win in relief. Uh, you're right. He got rocked on opening day, but they they won the game. Yeah, they did 11-7 over the yeah. Phillies. So you got me there. But all of his other starts were fantastic. Even with that bad start, his, uh, his FIP, his fielding and pitching, 154. And it's like, you have to assume some other starter pitching those six games. They do not win all six of those games. And they barely made the playoffs, you know? So I feel like you've got to at least give him some small amount of the credit for even getting to the playoffs because April wins matter too, right? So good for DeGrom. 
That, that is totally a fair point. I think the larger point, is, and we're in agreement on, is that these are worthy champions. Like, you go back to the recent... If, just looking at run differential as a quick and dirty way of looking at some recent champions, their run differential of plus 165 is better than the 2021 Braves, who were 134, 2019 Nats, who were 149, 2015 Royals, who were plus 83, 2014 Giants, plus 51, 2012 Giants, plus 69, 2011 Cardinals, plus 70, like... You get the point. You want to go back even further? Oh, remember the memorable, you know, 1996 Yankees? They had a plus 84 run differential, right? So, like, it's not a jerk, not an all-time juggernaut team, but totally within, like, the, the, the meaty part of the bell curve of World Series champions. I was going to say, if you think about, like, 21st century World Series champions, you'd put them, like, 50th percentile, essentially, like, somewhere in there. Neither, neither great nor, you know, embarrassing, which I'm perfectly fine with. Uh, a couple other things to get to about the World Series. I think a topic that people are starting to find obnoxious but is now completely unavoidable is look what happened with the third time through the order uh, with for starting pitchers. And I know it gets annoying talking about this so much. Zach Gallen in Game 5 last night. First two times through, 18 plate appearances, one walk, no hits. Third time through, five plate appearances, three hits. And that was basically the game right there. If you actually look at uh, all starting pitchers in the postseason, so first time through, right, 719 OPS, second time through, 797, third time through, 840. Obviously, there's some selection bias there about who doesn't even get the shot to do it. Relievers, by the way, first time through, 661. And that right there, that's why they do it. It's why it's been talked about for 10 years. There was an argument. I'm not sure I would have actually had the guts to do it. There was an argument to take out Gallon with a no-hitter going last night. You know, it's kind of like the opposite of the uh, Blake Snell move. Um, Blake Snell got lifted. It didn't work. And Kevin Cash will hear about it for the rest of his life, talking about 2020. Zach Allen stayed in, even though his third time through numbers were terrible. And he gave up the runs that scored the World Series. Like, again, I'm not saying I would have taken him out with a no-hitter. But I think I would have taken him out after, like, the first hit allowed in the third time through. So we got we to gotta figure this out. We got to live with this. Like, it's not it's not going away. So what do you do about it? Yeah, I think I think that... What I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think where it comes down to is from a baseball per fan perspective, debating whether or not to take out the pitcher used to be a really fun, subjective debate. You'd be like, oh, like, does he look tired? Is his velo down? Is he getting swings and misses? Are they fouling it off? Like, you could really try – this was something you would debate while you were watching a game with your friends, right? You know, the, the most classic example is like Pedro Martinez in game seven of the 2000 three ALCS um, where basically they, they graded a little left him in and the Yankees kept hitting him. A couple of those hits were actually bloops, but like, and the Red Sox ended up losing the series. The curse continued, yada, yada, yada. And that was purely just like, Hey, should Pedro, this all time great pitcher be taken out? He looks tired. Is he not? It was all about a hundred pitches. Oh, and a hundred pitches, a hundred pitches is magic point. That was the, the conversation at the time was 100 pitches as if like the 100 pitches was this magic number that was like sent down from the heavens of like pitchers get tired at a hundred pitches. But in reality, what the third time to the order penalty and the fact that people have sort of realized that it's what's real, it's like takes a lot of the subjectivity out of it because it, it, we've seen that it's not just about a pitcher getting tired. It's as much about the hitter familiarity with seeing the pitcher a third time, seeing the arm angle that day, seeing the movement on his stuff that day, adjusting to the batting, hour, batting eye that day. Like there's all these things that have taken the subjectivity out of it. It's like, nope, actually, it almost doesn't matter. Even if you only throw like 50 pitches, even if you cruise through the first two times of the order, you're still subject to it because the hitters are just more familiar with your stuff. And I think that's the frustrating part is that we now like have internalized like this isn't really nearly as subjective as we thought it was. 
I'm sorry, I can't get past how you just yada 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 the entire Red Sox curse right there. It's only it's only eight decades well, between they, friends. Well, they won the World Series the next year, so in some ways, it's sort of like uh, it ended up being all go- you know. It just added to the the narrative, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about what this means for for pitching, it's like I don't want to say okay, it doesn't matter what you do that day, but. I think since we've only been talking about this for like, let's say 15 years or so, and it's only become like widely accepted and used in the game in the last five years or so, people start to think that it's an effect that has only existed recently. And it's not true. It's just, we've only been talking about it recently, right? There've been studies like Tom Tango's done it. Rob Maines at Baseball Perspectives has done it. You go back through history, the third time through effect was actually more pronounced back in the day. It's not like this didn't affect Bob Gibson, you know? It's not like John Smoltz, as great as he was, wasn't worse the third time through. He absolutely was. It just it wasn't a strategy that was known or noteworthy or thought about. And I think it's it's hard to it's hard to avoid now. Like how many times have we seen it? A guy is dealing right up until he's not, and you'd rather take him out one batter too soon than one batter too late, even if I totally agree for storytelling. For aesthetics and entertainment, it's not maybe the best approach. Yeah. For example, in that 2003 season, Pedro Martinez, first time through the order, 535 OPS against. Second time, 528. Third time through, 723. So if we if go, knew what we knew then, if we knew then what we know now, he definitely would not have been in that game as long as he was. And as far as last night goes, I mean, Lavella was in a really tough spot because I think he was almost certainly planning to take, to take, um, gallon out at the yeah. first sign of real trouble. The thing was, Corey Seager let off that inning and he hits like a dink single down, like, oh, you know, beats the shift, so to speak. So it's almost like, okay, well, like, he didn't really hit that hard. I still trust my guy. And then Evan Carter smokes the double and you're you're like, oh my goodness, now we're in trouble. And they, and then he ended up, I thought at that point it was weird that he, that gallon got to face, I think, two more hitters, that Mitch Garver hit the, the game, the game tying signal. Although credit to, I know Alec Thomas ended up being like a goat later, but on that play, on a ground ball single up the middle to hold Evan Carter at third base at the time seemed like a huge play, the way he charged that ball and came up throwing. Like, Evan Carter is fast. You would think, like, oh, ground ball single up the middle. He is scoring no matter what. So they held him. And then Kevin Ginkle, the gink, came in and kept it at one run. And it looked like, okay, maybe they can actually come back and win this game. Of course, you know, the Diamondbacks what, went 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position. Like, it was the first few innings of that. I, I felt I felt I was glad I was not a Diamondbacks fan. Another thing about Lavello is earlier in the postseason, and I guess Brandon Fat doesn't have the same. Or is it Fott or Fat? I'm not it's sure. Fott. Yeah, Brandon for, Fott, for his for his sake, it's Fott. Fott. Yeah, Brandon Fott for his sake. Um, Brandon Fott was removed in a similar situation. But he doesn't have the same like you know reputation as Gallon, so it's easier to sort of like. But there was a one of the games against the Phillies where Fott was removed before the third time through. Even when he, I think he'd given up maybe one hit, and Lavello was like, "Nope, you're done." It's easier to do that with a rookie who had a 5.72 ERA in the regular season than it is to do with a Cy Young contender, and that's kind of where the difference is. But like Lavella was clearly not afraid to go to have the quick hook the third time through. I think that's right. Uh, as I remember, Fott was going to face Corey um, Kyle Seager, <laughs> and even at the time, was like, "Yeah, you don't that you don't want that to happen." I think you mean Corey Seager. Uh, no, Kyle Schwarber. That's oh, where Schwarber. I was going. He's going to say Kyle Schwarber. I because I was thinking about what are we going to talk about next. I know your idea of is Corey Seager going to be a Hall of Famer, right? So obviously, Corey Seager is a huge star of this postseason, uh, is one of the very few players to win two different Most Valuable Player Awards in the World Series. And he uh, is he's basically done with his 20s, right? He just completed his age 29 season 
And if you look at his career to date so far, it's pretty good, right? 292, 361 on base, 512 slugging, 170 homers, 32 wins above replacement at Fangraphs. And I think to his credit, he stayed at shortstop a lot longer than most people thought he would. I think I thought he'd be a third baseman by now. And he's played pretty okay. So when you look at his career, you look at all shortstops since 1969, the divisional era uh, through age 29, he is essentially tied for, let's say, 11th in wins above replacement, right? And this is a list where it's actually, he's probably even a little bit higher than that because some of these guys didn't stick at shortstop, you know, through their 20s. Like A-Rod was a third baseman, you know, and Nomar moved off a short and Robin Yount moved off a short. And so you could probably say he's one of the 10 best shortstops through their 20s of the last like 50 years, which is pretty good. Now, I think the one thing that's going to hurt him is he hasn't always been healthy. He only played 26 games in 2018 because of Tommy John and not his fault. There was a shortened season in 2020, but that's only 52 games broke his hand in 2021. And even this year, he only played 119 games due to a hamstring and a thumb. And I think I would say to answer the question that I have posed to myself, is he a hall of famer? The talent is there for sure. The production has mostly been there. It's going to be about staying healthy right? He can't really afford too many more like giant chunks of missed playing time. Yeah, I'll admit this. So I was, as I was watching the game last night and when, when the game ended and he was named World Series MVP, I just thought like I had this realization where I thought to myself, oh, is Corey Sear a Hall of Famer? Like two World Series MVPs? He's been a superstar. He was on a rate basis. He was an MVP candidate this year. He's probably still going to be a top finisher, even though he only played 119 games. I was like, wow, we might be watching a Hall of Famer right here. And then I, I posed this to you, and I was like, hey, we should talk about this. And then when I started to look into it, I was actually surprised where his war total stood relative to, like, similar players. And then I I think I'd forgotten how much time he'd missed a couple seasons in his career. Um, so as of, you know, 11.30 p.m. last night, I was like, oh, Corey Seager's a lock for the Hall of Fame. Now I'm not so sure. That said, two World Series MVPs, man, like – the only other guy who's done nothing. that is, is, <laughs> that is Reggie Jackson, and you know he's kind of a legend. So obviously he still needs you know a few more years of good production. And the war total—I mean, you, you have to think to be like a Hall of Fame lock, you you have to be at almost like you know sixty to seventy WAR, and he's still in his in thirty in the thirty range. So actually, he's like he's, in that regard, he's probably further away than I thought. That said, like the world's the the postseason performance um, will certainly work in his favor and probably if he gets close we'll almost certainly push him over the edge but he, i will say he admittedly probably has more work to do than i thought at the end of the game last night i'm just gonna mildly correct you there he's he's not the only uh he and reggie are not the only ones with two world series mvps oh, only two hitters players. yes yeah because kofax and gibson reggie and seager are the only ones to do it for two different teams though which i think is actually kind of cool yeah i'm with you i think um you know what i'm thinking is each year i usually do like a, a list article you know how many hall of famers will you see right now right and it always starts with mike trout and you know miguel cabrera last year and now now i gotta think real hard about whether i'm gonna put Corey seager on that list so um thanks for making me think about that all right we'll take a quick break uh we'll come back and we're gonna look ahead to big questions of the offseason When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. We're going to look ahead to the offseason, and I think it's going to be a pretty interesting one. We're obviously not going to go through every free agent and every team right this second, but I have like five big questions that I kind of want to talk about because I think these questions are going to define a whole lot of what you see this winter. Um, For me, Matt, I don't know how you can start literally anywhere than, hey, where's Shohei Otani going to play? Right, And I'll give you this. Everybody seems to think there's a 0% chance he goes back to the Angels. I'm willing to go all the way to 2%. I think he's comfortable there. Obviously, he's you know he's got his place that he lives. He, he does, I don't want to say he's under the radar because he's Shohei Otani, but the level of fame he has in Anaheim is different than it would be in New York or with the Dodgers. So he's not going back to the Angels, but he might. That's, that's where I'm landing. <laughs> I think that's fair. I, I mean... It's still, I mean, he's done such a good job of sort of keeping this cloud cloud of like mystery around him. It's still like not really that well known why he signed with the Angels in the first place, right? Like it's, so there's obviously something he liked about being there and it remains to be seen. It will obviously be fascinating. I think that like when he ultimately signs based on the, the, the way we've seen contracts go in the last few years with opt-outs and options and all sorts of triggers and things like that, I think his... His contract, because of him being hurt and not being able to pitch this year and the, the future of his pitching, his contract will probably have way more of that and will be way more. That's my prediction. His comp, his contract is going to be very complex and a lot of fine print, and there's a chance that he ends up being a free agent two years from now um, as a result of it. 100% true. Like the, the top level will be like, you know, 10 years and 500 million, right? But it's going to be like, and this much if he pitches this many innings and an opt out after every fourth Tuesday. Like it's going to be so difficult to actually evaluate the value. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot and say what team, but I, I have him down to two different teams. And it's not the Angels. It's not the Yankees. It's not the Mets. I'm giving you two teams, Mariners and Dodgers. That's where he's going to end up. One of them. Um, I would say the... Uh, Dodgers or Rangers? Rangers. Oh, I like that. Okay, second question. Not enough people, I think, know this name, but you're going to need to learn it. Uh, One of the Japanese pitchers who's expected to be posted this winter is Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who, if you don't know his name, I'm going to read you three numbers, and they are going to blow your mind. Here are the three numbers. 139, 168, and 116. Matt, do you know what those numbers are? I'm going to tell you. Those are his ERAs from the last three seasons. (laughs) They all started with a one. He's just 25 years old. Uh, He has won the Pacific League in Japan's MVP each of the last two years, and he's won the Sawamura Award, which is Japan's version of the Cy Young, each of the last two years. So he is expected to immediately be maybe a number one, maybe a number two, but a high-level starting pitcher. And depending on how you feel about, you know, Aaron Nola, he might be the best starting pitcher available. And it's going to be fascinating to me to see where he goes. Like this, this to me is like the bets have to be all over this, right? <laughs> like well, there's so many teams that need to, the Dodgers. How many teams need a starter and have lots of money to spend? 
Yamamoto is your man. I love how you were mentioning the best starting pitchers and you mentioned Aaron Nola before the guy who's going to win the American League Cy Young Award, who is also a free agent in Blake Snell. I guess that says something about your feeling. National about- League. The Padres are still in the National League. But you know what? I don't I, I don't want to say I'm down on Blake Snell. He doesn't work deep in the games and he has like a 13% walk rate. I actually do think it's fair to say I want Yamamoto over Blake Snell. That's not unreasonable. I'm saying whether or not you want Aaron Nola over Blake Snell. But anyway, getting off topic, I think Yamamoto, my first instinct is the Mets are going to do everything they can to sign this guy. And it's hard to imagine, not not say hard to imagine they don't, but I think that like they will offer the most money. That said, one reason that it could be tricky for the Mets is that pitchers generally in Japan do not pitch on five days rest. Um, They pitch once a week and they already have Kodai Senga, who they brought in last year, who was fantastic, but they really protected and didn't really let him pitch on regular rest. They tried to give him a full five days of rest every time he pitched. And if they're going to try and do that again, to also have Yamamoto, to have two highly paid pitchers who cannot pitch on four days rest, could be really hard to build a pitching staff around. I still think that they probably will end up signing him, but I think that that's something that I've not seen discussed that I think is a real thing that they have to consider in going after him. I think that's a great point. And it's definitely one I hadn't thought about unless you just, you know, get a whole rotation of guys who like being on six days rest, and then you solve that problem. The Mets right now have, I think Senga is probably their only reliable starter, unless you really like David Peterson or Tyler McGill. Which... Jose, Jose Quintana is pretty good. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's, I mean, as far as, the, it's not a high ceiling, but it's a reasonably high floor in terms of like, you know, Cromulent Major League starter. <laughs> Cromulent, nice word. All right, our, uh, my third big question, how will teams approach the winter based on the successes and failures of last year's big spending teams. So what I mean by that is the Rangers spent a ton of money and they won a World Series. Wonderful for them. The Padres and the Mets spent a ton of money and they didn't go anywhere. So it's like you've got these competing narratives here. There's probably not one right answer other than always do what you can to improve your team, certainly. Um, I just, I'm really interested to see what tack you would take on that, right? Because you can say, hey, go Rangers, but then also, hey, what happened to the Padres and the Mets? I don't think there's one right answer other than to say money helps you be better and it helps you cover up failures, but it doesn't by itself guarantee you success. I think that's right. And I think that one thing, this is somewhat subjective, but like with what worked for the Rangers, you know, they signed a Grom that didn't really work to the extent they would have liked to. But with Seeger, they signed in a premium player in a still in his twenties at a premium position. Like, I think that there's this, those players have generally like, you know, you look at, Machado with the Padres, that's worked out. Um, Bryce Harper, that's worked out. Trey Turner probably is going to work out. He had a weird year, but like ultimately, like I think the Phillies feel pretty good. The Phillies are like another example. So it's like those are the players that are like the difference makers. The problem is those aren't really on the market this year. There's Otani, which would qualify, and Yamamoto maybe because of his age. But I think where the like so where the Mets have gone wrong is they've spent you know they spent on old pitchers, which like kind of worked the first year with Scherzer, but like that didn't really really work. I mean. Lindor wasn't a free agent, but thus far they they signed that big extension. That's looking pretty good in terms of his production through what three or four years on the team now. And like those are the kinds of players you want. Like when you can get the guys who are still in their prime, and that's where they benefited with Simeon and Seager. That's what worked for the for the Rangers is getting those guys. They don't really exist this year on the position player front. Um, and then I think that it's kind of really only Otani and maybe Yamamoto who would fit that bill for this year. And even Yamamoto, because of you know coming from NBP, it's a little less clear. 
Yeah, when I, when I think about why the Padres failed, I think it's two things. One of the things is I, I will go to my grave believing that they were better than they looked, right? They had such weird extra innings, like rispy stuff that is not predictable. Like they were a better team. If the season was six months longer, they'd have won the World Series. Like I guarantee it. The other thing is, even though they spent a lot of money on the roster, the roster, even from day one, never made a ton of sense, right? Like the pieces never really fit together all that well. Even, you know, Jake Cronenworth's extension, you and I were both pretty confused about, and that doesn't look that great right now. So I think you're going to see teams, uh, you know, follow maybe a little bit more of the Rangers path in the sense of, well, you know, 90 wins might be able to get us in the tournament and we can spend our way to 90 wins, but we might not be able to spend our way to 99 wins. And that's okay. Here's a a similar question. This is question number four. And I think the answer to this one's got to be yes. Will teams pivot now that we're one year into the new rules to being more speed-based and athletic, so think more of the Reds, think more of the Diamondbacks, think less of the Yankees, who were slow and old. And I feel like the new environment and the new rules uh, lends itself to that a little bit. I think you're going to see teams being more aggressive on the base pass next year. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that like you know that's an, going back to the the Mets and the Padres as examples of teams that just like the rosters didn't really fit. They didn't didn't have a lot of athleticism. It's not just about stealing bases; all that helped. It's like having some athleticism on defense. Um, being able to take extra bases, like this is one thing that that the you know the Diamondbacks thrived at, and also I mean, you know, we talked about the Rangers. All the all the emphasis is on their free agent signings. They also had two stud rookies. Like Josh Young was awesome. Evan Carter was awesome. Like it's not you know like the player development part of it was a big part of their success, and that's kind of getting overlooked. So having young players who can not only play good defense, but also give you an extra element in all facets of the game. Um, the thing is, you can't sign those players in the free agent market. So you wonder if maybe we'll see some interesting creative trades. And I think that could be, that's a good segue to your fifth question, because I think we are going to see a lot of very interesting trades this offseason. Yeah. So my fifth question, obviously the focus will be on Otani and the focus will be on Yamamoto and the focus will be on free agents, but don't forget, you can trade for players too. And I feel like we are going to be talking a lot about whether Juan Soto will get traded. Not just him. Corbin Burns is a good example. Maybe even Pete Alonso, right? There's a couple of other guys. But Juan Soto, it feels like the time is right for the Padres to trade him. Um, They have to extend him soon. And so the longer they wait, the less they'll get back for him. He will have a massive contract and he'll be worth it. And if there's any team that feels like they kind of need to shake things up, it might be that Padres roster because things didn't really work out as expected last year. It's hard to think of competitive teams, contending teams who would not be interested in Juan Soto. And I know, I know this is a New York centric point of view. I'm not a Yankees fan. I swear. How is, how is he not on the Yankees, right? A left-handed swing like that in Yankee stadium for a team that had absolutely atrocious hitting last year, the sixth fewest runs scored. Juan Soto and pinstripes makes an unbelievable amount of sense to me. Yeah. I think, you know, his first few months in San Diego were not very good at all. The end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, but he was fantastic this year. It was like vintage Juan Soto. And I think he suffers a little bit from what Joey Votto used to suffer from, where he like he won't swing at bad pitches. So people get frustrated with him because like he he never will try and like, you know, get a sack fly with a runner on third. He would much rather just like take the pitch. And I think there's like this feeling of like, oh, this guy doesn't drive in runs. It's just like, but there's no one with a better control of the strike zone than Juan Soto. He's an elite hitter. I think, yeah, the Yankees make all sorts of sense. I think that, like, the combination of him being a year from free agency, so a team that will trade for him, they'll want to be able to give him a qualifying offer, so there's incentive to trade him before opening day. Um, the the Padres have don't have much young talent coming 
Um, they've some, but it's not like you know they they may have the a generational catcher coming in Ethan Salas who's like a double A at like age seventeen. So it's not like the the cupboard is completely bare. Um, but they need to do something, and he's the most obvious piece to trade. So that one will be interesting. You mentioned Corbin Burns. The Brewers always trade their guys before they hit the free agency, or at least it feels that way. So I feel like he's a lock to get traded. You also have, I mean, I think part of the reason why I think there's going to be big trades, you have, you know, Craig Breslow just introduced in Boston, wants to put his mark on the team. David Stearns in New York will probably want to put his mark on th- mark on the team. So I think the combination of those factors, lack of elite free agents, new heads of baseball operations in big markets, there's we could see a lot of a lot of interesting movement. And that's what I'm excited for this this offseason. Yeah, a sleeper name too that I haven't heard much about is uh, Dylan Cease because you got a new head of operations in Chicago. That team is not very close to contending. He is, I can't remember if he's one year away from free agency or two, but he also seems like the kind of guy with the raw stuff where if he goes to like a pitching lab team, they could turn him back into a Cy Young level ace. And I think it's, it's going to be, we're going to talk too much about Otani and not enough about all the guys who are going to get traded, I guess. I shouldn't say that. It's not possible to talk too much about Otani. Uh, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Before we go, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Mandy Bell and Sarah Langs, who are our podcast uh, co-hosts on their own version of the show. They'll be back soon. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, having suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.